Support for Milledgeville Matters comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and today we're going to turn back the pages of time and try to extract meaning from the ghostly gaze of a young soldier from the Civil War. Joining me by phone today is Hugh Harrington, an independent researcher, author, and editor of the Journal of the American Revolution. Hugh is joining us to talk about his latest book, The Boy Soldier, Edwin Jemison, and the story behind the most remarkable portrait of the Civil War, and that's a book he co-authored with Alexa Filipowski. Hugh Harrington, welcome to Milledgeville Matters. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is all mine. I'm just happy to get to talk to you about this uh, new book that uh, uh, shines a light on uh, one of the many people in Milledgeville that is, um, you know, a history maker and also uh, speaks to broader, broader issues about our history and our present. Now, in the synopsis of The Boy Soldier, you write, Since its first publication over 50 years ago, the haunting image of Private Edwin F. Jemison has attracted widespread attention from those interested in the Civil War and other wars. His likeness has been compared to that of the Mona Lisa, and it rivals Abraham Lincoln as being one of the Civil War's most recognized photographs. So to start off our conversation today, um, I was wondering if you might describe what you see in this photograph, um, both literally and figuratively. Well, I've been looking at his photograph since uh, it came, was first published in 1960, and I have a difficult time you know, looking away from those eyes, and to some extent his mouth. He looks very pensive. You know, is he afraid? Uh, is he looking at, you know, embarking on this wild adventure of going into the army. Uh, you know, what is he thinking? There's millions of pictures of Civil War soldiers, some of them the same age as uh, Eddie Jemison. He was 16 when he enlisted. But Jemison's picture is different. It's, it's more haunting. Maybe it's because we know that he got killed. I don't really know. Sometimes I look at it and think, well, his uniform coat is too big. You know, does that make him look like a, a smaller boy? I, I really don't know, but it's a, it's a kind of thing that once you see it, it's hard to forget. And I think many people have looked into those eyes in your scribes, and, and they do not ever forget uh, this image of this young man. And I think that's because we know about the history of the Civil War. We know about the history of, of warfare since then. And for some of us, you know, we might even put ourselves in the place of, of this young man who's in front of, of the camera at this time. I was wondering if we might even go a little bit broader and if you could talk about what the portrait has come to represent, um, either about uh, soldiers in the Civil War, about the Civil War itself, or even possibly just the nature of conflict? It's more than just the Civil War. I think it's sort of a loss of innocence. Include today. If somebody comes to enlist in the Army today, and they took his picture, you know, day after tomorrow, they might look very much like this. 
embarking on the great adventure. But the, the picture itself has been used and used not just in the Civil War, but in everything from insurance advertisements and to even cartoon characters of him. I've seen him wearing a Mickey Mouse hat. It's a very odd thing, uh, just a, in almost every conceivable way. He's appeared either to preserve history, to remind people that there are soldiers out there that are young. It's just everywhere. And so in that answer, I mean, you're saying that just the look on this young man's face may have lessons to teach us that may not even be strictly applicable to war because it sounds like people have used his image and stripped away um, any vestige uh, of the Civil War and its history and repurposed that image for for other uses. So there is uh, something uniquely human about uh, the face of this young 16-year-old who's staring at us. I think that's true, yes. You know, with those eyes, you know, you can use them for a variety of things. Uh, I've seen him in something that a personnel office was using for training purposes for their new employees. I don't know what their new employees were supposed to get out of the picture, but it seemed like an extraordinary thing to be using. Obviously, you can't speak uh, to this completely, but... I was wondering if you might uh, go a little bit further and just talk about uh, your thoughts on why this image resonates so loudly over a hundred plus years after it was taken. I don't really know. I think it's sort of just the mysterious face. People are sort of drawn to it and don't really know why. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to hold the photograph, the original photograph, and it was a very moving experience for me. I'd been studying Jemison for, you know, many years, and all of a sudden it was thrust upon me, and I, there I was holding it. I, I literally uh, was choked up and couldn't speak. It was a very, you know, dramatic event. And then a, a few years later, I was at a, a book signing, and I was just talking casually to a passerby about the Civil War, and he mentioned... Jemison, and this was in Milledgeville, and I said that I'd held the photograph, and he was just struck. I had held the photograph. It's like I had held the Holy Grail, and he and his wife fell silent like they were in church, and this was a momentous occasion, and he stuck out his hand, and, you know, it wasn't my hand he wanted to shake. He wanted to, you know, make a connection with Edwin Jemison. It was incredible. He just said, thank you, I'll never forget this, and turned and walked into the crowd and disappeared. I was astonished. But that's the kind of power that Edwin Jemison still has. And I want to actually quote you um, and what you'd written about that um, encounter, because uh, I think it is powerful in the way that we feel history when we're confronted about it. Um, you're writing about that incident at, at the Milledgeville Mall. You say that, that is the power of Edwin Jemison in the photograph. It is the power of real people in their history as it reaches out of the past and touches us in a way that is profound and, as the man in the mall said, unforgettable. It was quite a day. Well, we're about out of time in this segment, so I want to take the opportunity for a short break. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Milledgeville Matters on WRGC 88.3 FM. And today we're talking about the new book, The Boy Soldier, Edwin Jemison and the story behind the most remarkable portrait of the Civil War. Joining me by phone today is Hugh Harrington, and he's one of the co-authors of this book, along with Alexandra Filipowski. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Milledgeville Matters. Thank you for staying tuned to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today we're talking about a haunting reminder of war in conflict. And this is the portrait of a young Confederate war soldier. The soldier's name was Private Edwin F. Jemison. We're talking about his story today and about the story of this photograph on the occasion of the publishing of a book about Edwin Jemison. And that book is The Boy Soldier. Edwin Jemison in the story behind the most remarkable portrait of the Civil War. Joining me by phone today is one of the co-authors of the book, Hugh Harrington, a name that I hope is familiar to many of our listeners out there. Now, in that last segment, we were talking about this image and, you know, what is in the image and what the image speaks about, but what it may not contain in the, the heights to which our uh, familiarity with this image has gone. But you know, one of the parts of the book is to actually tell the story of this young man because although many people may know the image, they may not know the name of the person who's you know, photographed um, in this portrait, and they definitely may not know what his fate was. And so to start off with, I, I thought if I could ask you to just give a brief biographical sketch of Edwin F. Jemison. Edwin was born December 1st, 1844, just west of Macon. His father was a lawyer. They were reasonably well-to-do, although they lived on a farm, so they were farming as well as in the law. His father had gone to uh, Oglethorpe uh, University in Milledgeville. The family moved to uh, Louisiana, but at age 12, that would be in the summer of 1857, Edwin and his older brother, Henry, were sent to Midway School, which was just south of Milledgeville. The school was run by his grandfather, Baradell Stubbs. Henry died in 1859 uh, in Milledgeville. But Edwin was here until the summer of uh, 1860. Uh, when he left, he was 15 years old. But while he was here, in those formative years between 12 and 15, uh, he was in Milledgeville, and it was the capital of Georgia. This was the center of activity. He would have seen a lot of politics. He would have been in contact with important people. One of the most important was his 
great uncle, Tomlinson Fort. Tomlinson Fort died in 1859, and Eddie would have gone to his funeral and would have heard all about his famous uh, great uncle. I think that probably had a, a large influence on his short life. In, uh, I just want to stop you just to let, m- make sure people understand who Tomlinson Fort was. He, of course, uh, was a legislator. I understand he was in the U.S. Congress as well. Yes, and he, and he was also a very prominent medical doctor in Milledgeville. And was one of the people responsible uh, for the creation of the Georgia Lunatic Asylum at that point, or what we now know as Central State Hospital. Right. And more importantly, I think for Edwin Jemison, he was a war hero. It says in many places that he was in the War of 1812, but he was not. He was in the Patriot War, which was a conflict between Georgia and Florida. It took place in 1812, but it was not the War of 1812, which was an entirely different situation. Anyway, he was a legitimate war hero uh, in that conflict. Came home with a uh, musket ball stuck in his leg, in his knee, that bothered him throughout his life. And decades later, he and his son together extracted it from his leg. That doesn't happen to everybody. But he was a legitimate hero and that would have been talked about at his funeral. And Eddie was at the funeral. And a year later, he enlisted in the Confederate Army. And of course, he didn't enlist in um, uh, like the Baldwin Blues here. He actually enlisted um, with a company out of Louisiana. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. The family was living in Louisiana. And so when he left Milledgeville in the summer of 1860, He never came back. He went home to Louisiana, and that's where he joined the Confederate Army. Mm. Then from Louisiana, he went to uh, Virginia to uh, defend Virginia in the Civil War, and he was in the Peninsula Campaign. Then, you know, that went badly and went into the defense of Richmond, and then the Seven Days Battles after that, and then he was killed at Malvern Hill on July 1st, 1862. And now, from what we know about his life, would you say that his experience as a young uh, soldier in the Civil War was as common a story as perhaps his photograph or portrait would lead you to believe? Or were there things about his experience that were different or especially germane to the experience? I think his experiences were probably very common. He enlisted, and a couple weeks later, he's on the train from Louisiana to Virginia. His training amounted to virtually nothing. I assume it basically was how large masses of men could be moved from one place to another in something other than a mob. Uh, He'd be taught to march. Uh, But as far as skills he would need in battle, probably none. And so he comes into the Army and goes on the line with virtually no training at all, and then is sort of learn, and learn as you go. And I think that was quite typical. In, of course, he died pretty early on into the Civil War. Can you talk maybe about that aspect of what he might have experienced as opposed to uh, soldiers who could have come in later or those who might have, um, you know, survived throughout the conflict? 
Well, I think he had a period of relative inactivity. He got to the peninsula, and nothing was going on there. Uh, but this is the peninsula between the James and the uh, York Rivers. And then all of a sudden, the Union started building up troops from Fort Monroe. They brought in over 100,000 men, to, and there was only a handful of Confederates there to, to face them. And so then the war suddenly became real. He has suffered from uh, poor supply, poor clothing, poor food. Sometimes they didn't even have shelters. They'd get rained on. In the winter, it was cold. Poor medical care. And meanwhile, the enemy army is building up in front of them. They, then they get brushed back to Richmond. So, you know, it was a series of defeats. Most soldiers, I think, probably experienced much of the same as far as supply problems, food, clothing, shelter, except they might have done it for a lot longer than he did. It, it was a tough time. It really was, but it would have been tough for any soldier in any period of the war. Those who started at the beginning and you know came out at the other end, you know, after years of it, it must have been a horrific experience. And, of course, there is much written about the battles and campaigns of the Civil War, it, it, so we don't need to go into too much detail, but I was wondering if you might also be able to give just a, a little bit more context about the battle in which he finally lost his life. The Battle of Malvern Hill on July 1st, 1862, the last battle of a series of battles called the Seven Days, basically the uh, Confederate forces had been pushed up the peninsula to Richmond, and they're in the entrenchments around Richmond with an enormous Union army surrounding them. General Lee realized that with the heavy field artillery and uh, siege artillery that the Union army had, they could just sit out there and pound them to pieces, and the Confederacy was doomed. So what he did was break out and make a sweep around the Union right side with battles almost every day and push the Union back and had a, several victories, several inconclusive battles, and the last battle was at Malvern Hill. Emerson only participated in the last battle, and it was a very large affair with many thousands of men on either side, and it was probably the largest battle where artillery was a major factor. And he attacked across a field that was about a mile long, a mile from his starting position to the Union artillery, and there was almost no place of cover throughout the entire field. And he and his comrades, well, they referred to it as a charge, but it wasn't actually a run for that distance. It was just fast walking in line and getting mowed down by artillery. Must have been a horrific experience. And, of course, he perished in, in that charge. Um, the actual, uh, from what I understand, uh, the direct casualty of artillery fire. Probably. How he actually died is open to question. There are some very, very strange stories brought out in 1906 about his death. And the uh, man who perpetrated those stories, also from Milledgeville, but was in a different unit, is not entirely, well, is not very reliable at all. But what he was talking about may have actually taken place, even though he had no knowledge of it. Very, very complex and interesting 
stories that came out around the turn of the century. We're about out of time in this segment. I just want to close with part of his obituary, because you actually were able to see his obituary as um, reported in the Southern Recorder. And of course, you may have seen additional potentially obituaries as well. But reading his obituary, one of the things that struck me was this last passage that was written in there. And it seems as almost as if it was written by his, his mother. He was early dedicated by a loving Christian mother in a baptism to God. May he who maketh wars to cease comfort the sorrowing parents whose boy lies buried by loving hands on the battlefield near Richmond. And so just many different haunting aspects uh, to the story uh, of this young man, uh, Private Edwin F. Jemison. And so we're going to take a short break right now, but if you're just joining us, you're listening to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, uh, we're talking about the book, The Boy Soldier, Edwin Jemison, and the story behind the most remarkable portrait of the Civil War. I'm joined by phone today by Hugh Harrington. He's one of the co-authors of this book, along with Alexa Filipowski. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Milledgeville Matters. Thank you for staying tuned to Milledgeville Matters on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we're on the phone with researcher, author, and editor Hugh Harrington. And we're talking about his latest book, and that is The Boy Soldier, Edwin Jemison and the Story Behind the Most Remarkable Portrait of the Civil War. And this is a book that was recently released and which um, uh, Mr. Harrington co-authored with Alexa Filipowski. Now, in that last segment, we were talking about Edwin Jemison and his life story, um, or at least the, the biographical details that we have available to us at this time. And now I wanted to, in this segment, talk about the photograph itself, which, in my opinion, has taken on a life of its own, uh, you know, far removed from the actual birth and death of Edwin Jemison. And to start off with, I was wondering if you could describe for us how the photograph first came to the public's attention. It was first published by the American Heritage in the American Heritage Picture History of the Civil War. That was in 1960. This was a big picture book. But the photograph was misidentified. It was listed as Edwin Jennison, not, not properly spelled. And it stayed that way. Then in the 1990s, a woman named Joanne Aiello became fascinated with the photograph and was determined to find out more about this young man. And she was trying to find out what she could about the young man who had the wrong name, and she found out there was nobody in the Confederate Army with that name. And so she went through all kinds of research from the Library of Congress and elsewhere trying to figure out who this man was. 
and she was very frustrated and it had gone on for years and she kept checking back and there's never any new information and all this. And then one night she had a vision of Edwin Jemison standing at the foot of her bed looking very annoyed and he looked at her right in the eye and said, I'm from Monroe, Monroe, Louisiana, and disappeared. So next day she looks up the uh, census records for Monroe, Louisiana, and finds a family named Jemison, father named Robert, and a son named Eddie. And that is our man, Eddie Jemison, spelled correctly. So then she had something to work on, and she eventually tracked down the photograph, the original photograph. At that time, it was owned by a descendant of one of Eddie's brothers, obviously, uh, in Macon. And she found the photograph and actually held it. And then she went to Milledgeville, and the Union Recorder had a terrific article written by Don Skanky about her visit to Milledgeville, where she told about the vision in her dream. And I'm curious to go back even farther. How would this image have been published um, in 1960? Uh, how would it have been uh, found? Because I, I would imagine that there aren't, you know, a, a surplus of just copies of these portraits of young soldiers or, you know, um, other members of uh, the Confederate forces or the Union forces for that matter. American Heritage put out a, a call to the public saying they're interested in photographs of the Civil War, either photographs of individuals or photographs of events or buildings, places. And the family who owned Edwin Jemison's photograph submitted it thinking people might be interested in it. And there are thousands and thousands of such photographs. It was very common to have soldiers have photographs made when they enlisted, you know, to leave with their families when they go off to war. And his was just one of many, and American Heritage used it in their book. And, of course, um, we discussed a little bit beforehand that, uh, and like you just said, it was very common to have these photographs, and they almost kind of became like a genre of uh, just American interest for those soldiers who fought on the side of the Confederacy. Uh, some of these photographs became to be known as uh, Johnny Reb photos. Um, and I think the most um, you know, uh, common characteristic is um, uh, that hat uh, that um, Edwin Jemison is seen wearing. And, and then it, of course, had its corollary on um, the side of the Union, and they had these Billy Yank photographs of... Um, and I think most common in the American imagination or the American psyche is, is these images of these young, young soldiers. And um, I think as the war stretched on, many of them you know, sowing the, uh, the hardships of soldiers you know, during the Civil War. Right. They were done on both sides. Uh, and most of the soldiers were young, not 17, but they're mostly in their early 20s. They'd probably average 20 to 22. There were older soldiers, but most of them were, qu were quite young on both sides. My estimate is that photography was probably becoming more commercially available and more accessible to more people at that time. Um, can you at all maybe lend any kind of uh, understanding into you know what it would have meant to to get a portrait like this at that time? Would that have been you know although it may have been you know common for Civil War soldiers, would it have been something that was a new phenomenon for families at that time? I think it was new. It was the technique was around. You know, people could have it done, but they didn't really have a cause to do it. But when you're going off to war, that suddenly became a cause, and photographers set up instantly everywhere, either in a studio 
or outside using outside light. Uh, but often you'll see soldiers standing next to a prop, you know, a chair or something like that, and it's the same chair over and over and over again because, you know, they're just filing in, take a picture, you know, bring in the next man. It was a, a very common thing to have done. I'm curious, you've probably yourself seen many of photos of people from this time. Do you yourself personally think that there's something especially captivating about looking back into these artifacts of the past? Well, it's capturing a, you know, a moment in a man's life, uh, and you have to question, you know, what got him to that position? Did he volunteer? Was he drafted? Did he have high aspirations? Was it a political thing? Or did he just do it because his friends were doing it? And it felt like the right thing to do. He didn't want to be embarrassed and stay home when his buddies went to war. Well, it was, you know, the, at, especially at the start of the war, you know, this was sort of a glorious thing. It's almost like that scene from Gone with the Wind where, you know, oh boy, the war has started and everybody's all excited. That enthusiasm, of course, died very quickly. But, you know, what brought those people to this point? You know, were they fighting for slavery? I rather doubt that a 16-year-old Eddie Jemison, I mean, even though his family owned slaves, was he fighting for slavery or was he fighting for states' rights? Or was he going because his friends were going on the great adventure? I sort of think he was going on the great adventure. In, and I'm curious, do you know, was he in Milledgeville during the secession conventions? No, he would not have been. He would have left before that. He left in the summer of 1860. Mm. So it would have been just just before that. Because I, and although I can't quote it, or nor do I remember it well enough to try to speak to what it says, but I, I remember some of the descriptions that the poet Sidney Lanier wrote about the secession conventions. Uh, he, of course, I believe, was a, a student at Oglethorpe University at the time, and just feelings that it filled the young men with at that time. And of course, helped you know those feelings of uh, you know patriotism to to their side of this conflict was one of the forces that helped march them off to war. And um, I think when you think about Lanier, um, I think there's also another passage that he had written coming home from the Civil War and reflecting back on uh, what he had written while witnessing the secession conventions. I think you're right. While the secession convention was not actually taking place, there was certainly a build-up to it, and there was war talk, and what do we do if Lincoln gets elected? And all of this that Eddie would certainly have been exposed to, and this wild, super-patriotic enthusiasm, and not necessarily patriotic to the Confederacy, because the Confederacy didn't exist. It would be pro-Georgia feeling. And in fact, the, the Baldwin Blues were called up enforce martial law in Milledgeville because, you know, everybody was parading around and, you know, there's different causes and different candidates promoting themselves. And it was just sort of, you know, many months of not turmoil, but excitement. Mm-hmm. And he would have been, been there for part of that. Right. And um, I want to have one more question in, in this segment. And that would be, um, uh, we've talked about it, but I want to ask it more directly. You know, how popular has this photo become since it was first published uh, popularly, popularly disseminated in 1960? I think it's extremely popular. It's used, you know, for all kinds of things. In fact, 
if you do a Google search under Edwin Jemison, find his picture on all kinds of things where he's actually identified. It, you can't really do a Google search without a name, but the photograph is used many times without his name. You know, so like in the insurance advertisements, it's never identified as Edwin Jemison, you know, Confederate soldier. It's just his face. And many historical organizations use it just as sort of a, a symbol of whatever they're proposing at the time. So it's it's very common to to run into it. And if you keep your eyes open for it, you'll see it in unusual places. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break right now. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. My guest today is Hugh Harrington. He's a researcher, author, and editor, and he's the co-author of a new book, The Boy Soldier, Edwin Jemison, and the story behind the most remarkable portrait of the Civil War. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Milledgeville Matters. Thank you for staying tuned to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and you know today we're turning back the pages of time in recognition of a new book that's come out um, about a story of a person who had deep ties to Milledgeville um, during their lifetime and, and really after their lifetime. We're talking about the book, The Boy Soldier, Edwin Jemison and the story behind the most remarkable portrait of the Civil War. And on the phone with me today is the co-author of the book, and that's Hugh Harrington. Now, in this segment, I'd like to talk about your journey researching the life of Edwin Jemison and the life that this photograph has taken on uh, many years after his death. And I thought I'd start off that um, with just the question, you know, how did you come to dedicate what's been a, a decades-long journey into the life of this young man? Twenty years ago, uh, my wife got deeply involved in historic preservation of cemeteries in Milledgeville, and she developed the Memory Hill website. And when questions would come in from people about burials or history of uh, people in Memory Hill, she would turn them over to me because I was the history guy. One day we got a question from Alexa Filipowski in New York City asking if we thought that Eddie Jemison was buried in Memory Hill. So I went down to Memory Hill and looked at the lot and looked at the stones in it and was there for probably a half hour thinking about the order in which people were buried, the kinds of tombstones they had, and various things, and came to the conclusion he wasn't buried there. I emailed it back and said he wasn't buried there, and she was very excited about that because she didn't think he was either. And she's been had been spending all of her free time for a long time in the New York Public Library researching Edwin Jemison and Milledgeville and all things having to do with Central Georgia. We then exchanged thousands of emails 
about all things concerning Jemison and decided that we'd write an article about where Edwin Jemison was buried. So the first thing I did was go to the archives of the newspaper, and in the Southern Recorder I found his obituary. And his obituary said that he wasn't buried in Milledgeville either. He was buried in Virginia. The obituary, I believe, was written by his grandfather, Baradell Stubbs, because it's signed with an S. So that sort of got us started on it, and so we wrote articles for America's Civil War magazine on where he was buried, how he died, and then started talking about putting all this together and doing a book. In Now, in that last response, uh, you talked about what I think is uh, one of, of potentially several controversies um, about uh, the life of Edwin Jemison and the life that his image took on after his passing. I was wondering if you might talk um, about uh, some of these other, you know, either questions or uh, some that have been raised to the level of controversies uh, about this life and, and some of the, the work that you did in the book to untangle this life. Well, the initial genealogy of who he's related to and how they're related to each other and all that is fairly straightforward. Where he's buried, you know, you have two possibilities. One, he's buried on the battlefield. One, they brought his body back and buried him in Milledgeville or took his body to someplace else and buried it. Examination of the lot in Memory Hill, we took a whole chapter explaining that as to why he's not buried there. And we are absolutely convinced that he's not buried there. But it's hard to refute something etched in stone, which this literally is. Although if you look at the stone, you can tell that the stone was, you know, he shares a gravestone with his brother. So despite having his name on it, there's other indicators that he's not there. But that's sort of a a long-involved thing. The other controversy is how did he die? He was in a battle in which probably half the casualties were caused by artillery. And in 1906, a series of articles appeared that were, pretty much the same, but they claimed to be from an eyewitness that his head was blown off by a cannonball. Oddly enough, that eyewitness, or purported eyewitness, Warren Mosley, was from Milledgeville. There's a slight possibility he may have even known Jemison. He worked at the uh, Central State Hospital and lived near Stubbs' house where Jemison stayed. But anyway, he claimed that he had seen it, but there's a good chance he wasn't at the battle himself. And if he was, he would have been with the 4th Georgia. He would have been hundreds of yards away, could not possibly have seen it. But the story of him having his head blown off and standing and didn't fall to the ground, he stood there with blood gushing out of the top of his torso in a fountain is an image that is hard for people to forget. And that's how most people think that he died. But it becomes a very involved story as to how that story was originated and how it resonates through the family. Well, and I'm, I'm just curious, so 1906, that would have been, you know, roughly about 45, uh, somewhere between 45 and 55 years after um, he had died. Why would that have been a, um, a an article of interest at that time? Well, I think it's the manner in which it was told. The former Confederate soldier, Warren Mosley, uh, describes a telepathic situation where he's standing on a street corner in Macon, and Edwin Jemison's younger brother, now an older man, comes up to him and says, you know, Warren, what are you thinking about? You look very deep in thought. And he says, well, I'm just remembering a vision of a Confederate soldier having his head blown off at Malvern Hill, and the body didn't fall to the ground immediately, and a fountain of blood poured out, and 
It's just an unforgettable experience. And apparently Edwin's brother says, oh, my gosh, that was my brother Eddie. So that's sort of a dramatic thing to have to put in a newspaper, and newspapers were looking for dramatic things to put in. But several versions of that encounter were published within a few weeks of each other, I think mostly at the instigation of Warren Mosley, who was somewhat of a uh, colorful character, but he obviously could not have seen the death of Eddie Jemison. I wanted to also ask you about uh, some of the related research journeys that you might have gone on in the course of researching for this book. Um, you just mentioned Edwin Jemison's younger brother. I believe that's Sam Jemison. Yes, he had a brother, Sam, right, mm-hmm. and a, another brother, uh, Robert, Robert Jr. In the blog on um, y'all's web- website, which is edwinjemison.com, you, you write about this Sam Jemison, who himself is a very colorful character, it sounds like. I was wondering um, if you could talk about some of the not necessarily germane um, journeys that you went on uh, during the course of this book, anything that else that was fascinating to you that you might have uncovered while researching uh, for The Boy Soldier? In doing almost any research, when you start going into primary sources, you find things that you were not expecting. Sam Jemison is one. He was a prominent lawyer in uh, Macon, but he apparently had quite a temper and also seemed to violence was attracted to him. He was in several gun battles, and he eventually died probably of wounds that he had received earlier on. He died relatively young. And he's, he's buried in Memory Hill, as a matter of fact. Another, I, I wasn't specifically looking for Jemison information, but I was in the, the library at Georgia College, and I was reading the old 1860s newspapers, and I came across a list of the uh, men who died in Brown Hospital, which was named for Governor Brown. In 18, the summer of 1864, those men are the unknown soldiers who are buried under the unknown soldier monument in Memory Hill. That was staggering. I did a lot of research later to confirm the identities of all these men and put what units they were in and all that sort of thing. But that was a, an aside. You know, while you're looking for one thing, something else jumps out at you. Going to the remains of Jemison's grandfather's house, you just run into people and events uh, interconnected or not connected at all, but are historically interesting. And so it's actually sometimes very hard to stay focused on what you're looking for because there's so many interesting historical things that are leaping out at you every moment. That's one of the perils of reading very old newspapers. As you're going through the pages, you see things that you've never even thought of before or names of people that you know, oh, I know that man from somewhere else. It's fascinating. Historical research is all-consuming. Well, and of course, you know, there are a number of great resources that have to do about Milledgeville. Um, I think, you know, one of the most interesting things in my experience is the uh, Georgia Newspaper Project that is a part of the Digital Library of Georgia, uh, where you can read all of these different uh, historical Milledgeville newspapers uh, from the you know early part of the 19th century on up into uh, the early parts of, of the 20th century. And just, I mean, really... If you you want to um, you know take a trip you know just uh, go to the digital library of Georgia and start looking up some of these uh, some of these newspapers and searching through those stacks and I mean you can really lose track of time very quickly. Absolutely, I agree with you 100 percent. And I would take it a step further. Uh, the digital library of Georgia you can search under a name such as Jemison or whatever, 
But if you go to the microfilm, then you get the whole newspaper. And so then you are forced to read the whole newspaper looking for the articles that might or might not be there day after day after day. And you get a real feeling of like you were living in those times because you're seeing the whole paper and seeing all the news and all the advertisements that any citizen would get reading the paper on a daily basis. And then that's how I found the unknown soldiers because I wasn't looking for them and I couldn't have, been, I couldn't have found them if I was searching for them. But I just happened to see the article on them. And so there's articles that you, you, know, you just sort of end up reading decades of newspapers. It sounds horrible, and you can probably go blind doing it, but it's a, a lot of fun. It's right. very rewarding. And I would say you you can get you can make yourself very dizzy when you actually go to the microfiche. I, I like the digital library of Georgia because it just pops them up, you know, straight on. Whereas going back to the microfiche, that uh, act of reeling through all of them, uh, I, I, in the limited amount of times that I've done it, actually can be nauseating. <laughs> it can be. I absolutely I agree with you. You can go blind doing it. Mm. Well, um, it's happened again. We're out of time in this segment, Um, so we're going to take another short break. But if you're just joining us, we're talking with researcher, author, and editor Hugh Harrington. And we're talking about his latest book, which is The Boy Soldier, Edwin Jemison, and the story behind the most remarkable portrait of the Civil War. Uh, Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Milledgeville Matters. Thank you for staying tuned to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we're talking about uh, a piece of our history here locally, um, a man who lived part of his life in Milledgeville, um, but who in his death became to uh, be emblematic of, of a great uh, larger struggle of the, the Civil War itself, but um, also to an extent um, uh, the, the history of conflict, but also um, a, a history of humanity. I'm talking with um, author Hugh Harrington about his latest book, The Boy Soldier, Edwin Jemison in the story behind the most remarkable portrait of the Civil War. And now, um, Hugh, if, if you will excuse me, uh, this being our last segment, um, while well, I have you on the line, and you might hate me for it, I did want to dote on you for a second, um, you and your wife, um, Susan. And I just wanted to say, you know, for me personally, Milledgeville's story is so much more vivid because of the work that y'all have done. You know, we talked a little bit about Memory Hill earlier, but I want to say, you know, for me personally, that's still one of my favorite places in this community. And, you know, it, it's a place that renews my enthusiasm about Milledgeville and its story every time I go there. Your work hasn't been just to record these stories in book form like it is, um, but it, it makes it available to a new generation, uh, not only through the stories, but also the way that y'all took great strides to physically maintain the places out there for our generation and for future generations so that they might have the opportunity to be amazed and to understand our stories in the way that y'all have. Um, so I did want to just take this uh, a public opportunity to thank you so much. 
Well, thank you for saying that. That that really means a lot, and I'll pass that along to Sue. It'll mean a lot to her also. Excellent. Well, as you know, we we only have few opportunities like this to you know, you know let people know how we we truly feel about them, and I just wanted to take that opportunity. So I thank you for uh, the opportunity to say that. Um, but you know, on that note, I wanted to pick up right where we just left off and just ask you about. Uh, kind of your personal journey of following the the wonderment of history and learning more about you know our stories and just a- ask you you know what keeps you enthralled by this and continuing to to learn more. Let me start at the beginning. I guess when I was a kid, my grandmother lived most of the time at our house, and her father was a Confederate soldier. In fact, he was governor of South Carolina at one time, and so. You know, she would love telling, you know, her 10-year-old grandson about her, you know, father and her, her brothers and, you know, life in the South and, you know, the Civil War. And this was right around the time of the uh, centennial of the Civil War. And so I fell right into it and got involved in, you know, reading history. And that started out reading secondary sources and then became reading primary sources and uh, when I moved to Milledgeville, I saw this it is a gold mine. There's so many fascinating people and events. And I just started hanging out in the libraries and reading about all these people. And I saw that a lot of things were, were either not covered or not covered properly. And so I'd get fascinated and spend all kinds of time, you know, researching some minor detail and be like, you know, hitting an ant with a sledgehammer. But it was very satisfying we all have ancestors from somewhere and did something. And, you know, I don't look at the Civil War or the Revolutionary War as being that far back. We, you know, have, can relate to having ancestors who participated in this or that or at least lived in a particular area at that time and they would have seen these things. When I see a newspaper from 1861 or 1862, it shows the obituary of Jemison, hundreds of Literally thousands of people would have seen that in the Southern Recorder. There's a popular newspaper in its day. So I just started researching all these little out-of-the-way stories of people in Milledgeville. And that eventually led to writing the history column for the Baldwin Bulletin for a couple of years. And I loved it. I worked on it full-time. You know, one of the most satisfying times of my life, finding out made these people tick and tell interesting and sometimes humorous stories about, uh, you know, our forebearers. And why do you think it's important uh, that people, you know, continue this work of, you know, forever mining the past? You know, what does it do for, um, uh, you know, yourself, um, other researchers as individuals, uh, but, you know, for, I guess, society as a whole? Well, the people... 20 years ago, 50 years ago, or 150 years ago, or 250 years ago, were basically just like us. They had the same desires. Sometimes they had better educational opportunities than we have. And these people are not, you know, from another planet. They're just like us. And they had all kinds of interesting experiences that I'm sure they would find ours were interesting too. But you look at the way they handled their experiences, Sometimes they did the right thing. Sometimes they did the wrong thing. Sometimes they valued the wrong things. Sometimes they valued the right things. But these were not ignorant louts. These were uh, 
people just like us. And uh, it's just, I find it very interesting, and I think, I don't know, I really can't understand why other people wouldn't as well find what people did 200 years ago when confronted with a problem. I, I find it interesting to see how they worked out the solutions and what was their thinking behind it, what was their reasoning for creating the, uh, the Bill of Rights or something. Uh, what were those debates about? Uh, what was important to them? Are those things still important now, or are there different things that they hadn't thought of? Were they right? Were they wrong? It's a continuing story, and it goes way back, as far back as the written record. As you look at the story of this one individual and how in his life and even more so in his passing, he affected so many others, what do you hope that readers of The Boy Soldier take away from the experience of getting to know Edwin Jemison? I think it satisfies uh, a need. People have been looking at that picture now for over 50 years, and they're seeing what they want to see or think they see in his eyes. But to know how he lived, what he experienced, what may have affected his judgments, and to some extent what thoughts he may have had. There are no letters or diaries that were written by him, so we can only take an educated guess at what he was thinking. But based on what was happening around him and the decisions that he clearly made, uh, we can get a look at you know, what kind of a man he was. And uh, from what I've seen, uh, despite being a very young man, he's a remarkable man. Well, Hugh Harrington, I want to thank you today for joining us on Milledgeville Matters and sharing a little bit about Edwin Jemison's story, but also about your journey learning more about the boy soldier Edwin Jemison. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking with you. And the pleasure's been all mine, and I just you know, wish you well, and I uh, hope that you know, um, we can check in more times and learn about what you're learning more about in the future. I hope so, too. You've been listening to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we were talking about the new book, The Boy Soldier, Edwin Jemison in the story behind the most remarkable portrait of the Civil War. Today, by phone, we were talking with Hugh Harrington, a researcher, author, and editor, and the co-author of this book, The Boy Soldier, uh, which he co-wrote with Alexa Filipowski. I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. It's been my pleasure spending this portion of your evening right here on Milledgeville Matters. And I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.